Today's scripture reading comes from Luke chapter 14, verses 1 through 24. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. There, in front of him, was a man suffering from abnormal swelling of his body. Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts in the law, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him on his way. Then he asked them, If one of you has a child or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull it out? And they had nothing to say. When he noticed how the guests picked places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat. Then, humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowliest place, so that when you, your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Then Jesus said to his host, when you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives, or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast of the kingdom of God. Jesus replied, a certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of, this, of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first one said, I have just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I have just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to the master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you have ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and the country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. This is the word of the Lord. For most of our marriage, Julia and I have had a pretty open door policy for guests coming to our home, especially when our kids were younger and Julie was at home and it was easier for people to just, just drop by. Our backyard was always the neighborhood hangout for the kids, our kids and their friends. Now we didn't have a pristinely manicured lawn or like 
flagstone patio with string lights and a pool in the backyard. But what we did have was a trampoline. So people would drop by for visits with the kids. In fact, we'd have kids jumping on the trampoline in the morning when we wake up in the, from the neighborhood. Sunday conversations after the worship service, like this Sunday, would often turn into impromptu potluck lunches and playdates in our backyard. Obviously, that's changed a little bit because we don't have a trampoline anymore and our kids are grown up. But when you have a, re a relatively open-door policy, you get a variety of people visiting, people from different backgrounds and stories and socioeconomic classes, people of different abilities, people that, in fact, you normally wouldn't choose to spend time with if you think living life according to your preferences is an ideal to strive for. But it was always a beautiful scene to be able to share our small home with this big yard with others. Now, maybe you don't practice hospitality this way, but we all encounter situations where we in, uh, have to engage with people who are different from us, who might challenge our comfort zones. It happens at wedding receptions. It happens at work conferences or Christmas parties where you get seated at a table and you don't really know the people and you have to go through that awkward, you know, getting to know and talking about, you know, superficial things like sports and weather and whatever, travel arrangements. How do you deal with people in these kinds of settings? And even more, how would you deal with a person named Jesus sitting at your table? That's a question that's brought up in this text today when we resume our Gospel of Luke sermon series. In chapter 14, we find Jesus at a feast, and he talks about two parables about feasts. In fact, if you pay attention to the Gospel of Luke, you might notice that Jesus is either leaving a meal or going to a meal or sitting at a meal. Luke's Gospel has the most mentions of mealtime accounts than any of the other gospel accounts. Maybe that's why I like it so much, because I like to eat. But as much as I enjoy talking to people around a meal, this chapter makes me question if I would actually want Jesus to be a dinner guest at my house. Why? Because this dinner guest isn't afraid to pull any punches. <laughs> See, he doesn't just talk about sports or the weather or the cherry blossoms in the town or the traffic. This dinner guest doesn't pull out his phone and show you his latest home renovation project, or pictures of his pets and pictures of his kids. You can do that. But this chapter, Jesus, the dinner guest, gets to the real stuff. He touches on hard hearts, touches on humility and honor. He touches on hospitality. So that's what we're going to walk through today. Hard hearts, humility, and hospitality. You know, these are just light dinner time conversation topics. The first part of our text today once again reveals this rising conflict between Jesus and the religious establishment. He's said some things that have rankled him in, in recent days, but as respected leaders in the community, they still show hospitality by welcoming him to a Sabbath meal. And we're told that it's at a prominent Pharisee's house. As we learned in our Sabbath practice series in the fall, yeah, in the fall, the Sabbath meal in, in the Jewish tradition was the highlight meal of the week, celebrating God's goodness and provision. And yet Luke makes a note about this particular meal, saying, one Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of the prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. Foreshadowing. 
even though they've invited him as an honored guest, some of them have a different angle in mind. They're looking for any reason to discredit Jesus. Now, keep in mind, ancient meals were relatively porous events. I mean, unlike our modern affairs with RSVP lists and save the dates and, you know, seating arrangements, they, the invited guests were usually the men sitting around a table. Imagine this, this uh, platform as a table. And the, and, but the doors of the home would be open. Anyone could walk in. Anyone could walk out at any time during the course of the meal. They could sit and listen to the conversation. So during the course of this meal, a man suffering from swelling in his body, abnormal swelling, which I think some doctors would call dropsy today, walks in, and everyone knows this man in the village, and he sits kind of in the room. And Jesus, an honored guest, starts a religious conversation with his hosts. Pharisees, experts of the law. And so he engages at their level. Friends, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Jesus is wise. He's engaging guests at their level. But what was their response? Silence. And then he goes to proceed to heal the man right in front of them. And what's their response to the healing? After Jesus heals the man, Luke tells us that they had nothing to say. Silent responses to the question. Silent responses to the healing. In fact, it's a silent response to a miracle. If that happened at a dinner, well, how would you respond? I mean, we get excited enough when there's a guest who does magic tricks or stands up to sing a song. But Jesus, this guest heals a sick man before everyone's eyes, and the response is absolute silence. The Pharisees invited Jesus into their home, maybe out of obligation to social convention, perhaps out of curiosity or even out of honor. They're putting a good front out in front uh, in welcoming this popular. They knew this Jesus had a reputation. He's kind of passing through town. So as you know, respected leaders, they had to extend hospitality. As public leaders, the Pharisees and the experts of the law probably thought that they couldn't not invite Jesus into their home for a meal because they would lose faith, face be, before the community. But how does Jesus respond to their hospitality? Jesus is sitting at the meal. If I were there, it's like, oh, this is a wonderful meal. Wow, this appetizer is so good. What does he do? He makes a comment about their hard hearts. How's that for a grateful dinner guest? So how about us? If we were to invite Jesus into our homes for a party and he's seated at our table, in what ways would we be like Jesus' hosts? You know, like the Pharisees, we might want to have Jesus around to prove that we're respectable people. Or we might be curious about what all this hubbub around, around Jesus is. We want Jesus to help us look better before others or help us feel better about ourselves. But Jesus goes straight to the heart. He goes straight to our hearts, and he confronts the areas of our lives where we fail to show compassion. And he names outrightly, or by implication, all the ways that we hold up certain rules and certain expectations for ourselves or even for others that we fail to miss out on extending compassion or celebrating God's compassion at work in those around us. You see, we get religious about the most irreligious things. And we miss out on God's love at work in our lives and around us. God's love comes to melt our hard hearts. So 
but we have to be open to God's love and open to God's work. Luke tells us that the Pharisees' response to Jesus is silence. Will that be our response to his acts of compassion and mercy? The feast continues to unfold. After his fellow guests have an uncompassionate response to, of silence to this man's presence, but also to his healing, Jesus pushes further in this polite dinner conversation. Verse 7, what does he say? When he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. He moves from compassion versus rule following to another topic. And it sounds like a comment on social etiquette, but his observation is really about true humility and honor. And he does this by noticing how the host and the guests of the meal are likely trying to find places of honor at the seats of the table. Now, unlike what we typically imagine of a, a picture of the Lord's Supper in the 15th century Da Vinci's Last Supper painting, this is probably more likely how it looks. This is a 6th century mosaic from a church in Italy, in Ravenna. It's a depiction, as you see, it's a U-shaped uh, table, and the host typically sat at the left corner of the table at the end, not at the center as we think in the, the Last Supper. And the most honored guest would sit immediately next to that person, uh, to the host. And the second most honored guest would actually sit at the opposite end of the U. And that's why in the you know, Last Supper account, we're told Jesus leans over to John, and then the other Peter has to ask John, signal to John, looks to John to ask Jesus a question, because he's on the other side of the table. So, this, so this, what is, what is, what is, the whole point of this is that there's these honored places at the table. And Jesus is making a comment. If you arrive, the most honored guests also would also, would also arrive the latest. So if you came in and you took the most honored seats and the host comes in and says, oh, actually, the VIP's here. Can you move over? So rather than being honored, you're actually being shamed in front of all the other dinner guests. Rather than being honored, a presumptuous guest would be shamed in front of all the others. But what's Jesus' point here? He's using the seating arrangement not to teach his hosts about party etiquette. He's pointing out their pride and their presumption. Not just about party seating in social settings, but about their pride and presumption about their place in God's kingdom. You know, while his comments about party seating seem disconnected from this immediate scene before about healing on a Sabbath, Jesus is making a connection between these two scenes. He's connecting their hard-hearted response to this man's healing in the previous scene to their pride and presumption revealed in the seats that they picked for themselves at the table. Jesus' hosts think they've got the VIP reserved seats, tickets in God's kingdom because of their pedigree, because of their education, because they've been able to follow the law, more faith, law of Moses more faithfully than others. They believe themselves to be the honored guests who have the best seats at the table, but their response to this man's healing reveals otherwise. Could we be guilty of the same? 
See, pride prevents us from seeing God's generosity and responding with joy and compassion when people are included in God's blessing. You think, they deserve God's love and mercy? Are you kidding me? Look at what they've done. Pride creeps in and says, I deserve to be elevated. I deserve God's blessing because of my sense of righteousness, because I've been faithful to God over the years, or because of my theology, or because of my sense of justice is more complete than my neighbor's, or because my sense of God's love and inclu- is more inclusive than that person over there. See, this pride develops so insidiously in our hearts, we hardly even notice it. See, often what be- develops into a point of pride for us is actually, begin, be- actually begins as a gift from God. See, the Holy Spirit works in our lives, and we begin to recognize a gift from God. Other people might even affirm it in our lives. But slowly, we begin to own this gift for ourselves and believe that we are entitled to this gift. And we begin to hold this gift as a point of distinction, as a point of recognition for ourselves. We think, well, I am a more biblical Christian, or I'm a more progressive Christian, or I'm a more inclusive Christian or I'm a more orthodox Christian, whatever dash you add in front of Jesus' follower, we begin to hold that as a point of pride, and we compare it to others. And slowly, we might even begin to take this gift from God and have our hearts hardened because of how we hold this gift. That's what happens to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. The law of Moses was a gift from God to the people of Israel. But over the years and over generations, they began to build their identity. They began to build their distinctiveness and their honor and value from their adherence to this gift rather than sticking with the giver of the gift. What's the implication of this pride? This attitude says, "I, I no longer need God's love and mercy and compassion. And even more, it begins to imply that those who don't deserve it shouldn't get it, just like they did towards this man with the swelling in his body. So what are we to do? I think if we're really honest with ourselves, the same ugly pride and hard-heartedness can creep in to our hearts as well. You know, as Luke continues in verses 10 to 14, note all these passive verbs will be exalted, will be lifted up, will be blessed. You see, what we're told here is that honor isn't actively sought. Honor isn't, isn't for those who seek it and get the five-star reviews on Google listings and more f- followers on social media. That's not honor. No one can exalt themselves, especially before God. God is the one who honors. God is the one who exalts people. And it's based on God's assessment, not your own. <laughs> And God commits to exalting those who are humble. But what does this true humility look like? It's revealed in how we treat others. How we treat others impacts how God treats us. Jesus unpacks this further in verses 12 to 14. He shifts the focus from the seating uh, arrangements to the kind of people that we seek to have at the table. Think of that. He's shifting our focus from whether we're at the seats of honor to 
how we welcome those others to be at the table. From securing our seats at the table to bringing others to the table. That's what Jesus' feasting is all about. And this reveals true humility because it's about self-forgetfulness. It's not about me anymore and what seat I have and how that compares to those who are around me. Instead, it's about others and who can be at the table and be at the party together with you. Rather than seeking places of, and positions of honor in God's family, true humility is, how, is revealed in how we welcome and treat those who cannot repay us with honor or with favors or with relationships. And I know this kind of principle goes against every grain of how things run in the city. In Washington, your honor and your recognition are all dependent on who you know, whose networks you belong to, and whose wheels you grease. Maybe we're not in those, in those realms, but that's how a lot of this works. But the kingdom of God is not just for the ups and the ins and those who know the right people, but it's for the downs and the outs. And in God's kingdom, true humility is expressed in how God's people treats those who are downs and the outs. And that's what leads to true honor in God's kingdom. Remember when I asked you earlier in the message whether you would want Jesus to be a uh, uh, guest at your party? What do you think about that still? Do you want him? <laughs> See, at this point of the evening, things have gotten even more ten tense. The tension is palpable. Palpable, palpable. palpable enough for someone to speak up in verse 15. See, there's the silence after the healing, and then this pointing out the places of honor, pointing out how they're not really being honorable. They're, in fact, proud. And then one of those in verse 15, at the table with him heard this. He said to Jesus, Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. What's going on here? Oh, bless his heart. That's what polite people say here in some parts of America, right? And sometimes it's said, said in a very complimentary way. But I've also witnessed it said in a very kind of side, throwing shade sideways. So, oh, bless his heart. Let's talk about the weather now. Oh, bless his heart. It's a, it's a redirection from tension. The man's trying to cut through the tension in the air and deflect the tension from the people seated at the table to something else. You could say this man is actually trying to show hospitality, to show love in the way that he could by getting rid of that icky us versus them feeling that's of the people at the table. But is that really hospitality? In that statement, he's basically saying, yeah, yeah, okay, okay. Yeah, let's just recognize we're all different, but isn't it great? We can all look forward to this great wedding feast that all of us are going to be at together. How many of you identify with this man? But what's Jesus' response to this man's attempt at hospitality? He doesn't. He responds with a parable. About another parable, about a great banquet where there's many invited guests, but those invited guests don't show up because of their excuses. I just bought land, I can't come. I just got a bunch of cattle, I can't come. I just got married, I can't come. See, these original guests have been already given the save the date notifications many, many, many years ago. And they've been given the instructions to recognize when the parties started. But now the banquet is here. 
It started, and they all say, I can't make it. I'm out. So the host goes on and welcomes everyone else, and including those that the original invitees would never have expected to be at this party. See, in this parable, Jesus challenges the assumptions made in this man's remark. See, this man's statement assumes that everyone seated at that table, at, at this table with Jesus, is going to be at that table in the great banquet with God. But Jesus' parable says, says that those who appear to be in line for the blessing, who appear to be at this table, might actually not make it to that table. And we've heard Jesus talk about this in previous chapters in Luke. He speaks above a barren fig tree in chapter 11 and chapter 13. Two weeks ago, we were in chapter 13, and that's where we heard Jesus condemn Jerusalem and lament over Jerusalem's rejection of him as a prophet. And this brings us to the crux of this parable. See, the original invitees to God's great banquet are the people of Israel, the descendants of Abraham. They're the ones who have been given the save-the-date notifications and the invitations in their mailbox. They've been given all the signs to recognize the party has started, and that party is God's kingdom arriving. And now the kingdom has arrived because Jesus, the Messiah, has arrived in their midst, and the celebration of God, God's kingdom, is, is beginning. It's proceeding. The party has started, but some of the original invitees are so preoccupied with whatever it is that they're preoccupied with that they're missing it. And so now, the host is opening up the doors of this feast to others who previously would have been excluded. And that's the Gentiles. That's most of us who aren't Jews by descent. So you might be thinking, okay, Andrew, this sounds interesting. Jewish history and Messiah, feasts. But this is really a Jewish problem, right? This is Jesus' rebuke of Israel. Most of us here aren't descendants of Abraham, so that... We can just ignore this chapter, right? Jesus' dinner guests assumed that they were beneficiaries of God's blessing based on their moral performance, based on their pedigree. But his response reminds us that uh, whether we focus on, whether we're in on God's hospitality, that's the wrong question to ask ourselves. Instead, the better question for us is, how do we extend God's hospitality to others? Because that reveals far more about us and about the quality of our faith. It's not about whether we think God loves us, or whether, uh, but it's about how we reflect God's love towards those around us, especially those who are most marginalized and suffering. It's very similar to uh, Jesus' teaching on humility and honor. Focusing on whether we benefit from God shows exactly why that we miss the point of living in a relationship with a God of love. Like Jesus' challenging words to his hosts, the only way that we benefit from God's hospitality and honor is determined by how we respond to the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's not by whether we think we're deserving of God's love. The only basis for benefiting from God's hospitality and honor is our response to God's hospitality revealed in the cross and the resurrection. Do we receive Jesus as the Son of God, as God? Do we receive Jesus as the one who 
heals us from all of our dis- dysfunction, as the one who heals us from all of our disorientation? Do we receive Jesus as the one who leads us into a truly flourishing life? The way we respond to Jesus reflects the kinds of hearts that we have towards God. It's easy to look at this text and think, well, this doesn't really apply to me because it's really about the Jewish people and whether they accept Jesus as the Messiah. But I think a lot of times we live like we don't accept Jesus as the Messiah. I think we can all be guilty of having a hard heart towards God because we think we've got things figured out in our lives. We like to think we live pretty good lives on our own, and Jesus is just a nice side piece. We can all be guilty of measuring our lives and our faith with others and believe ourselves to be worthy of honor. We can all be guilty of failing to show hospitality and mercy and compassion, especially to those who cannot repay us. Here's the thing about this feast that Jesus is referring to. I think for many of us, Maybe we've followed Jesus for many years, and we read something like this, and we think, well, this is about this great banquet. It's only in the future. But in this text, Jesus is saying that this great banquet is God's kingdom, and this great banquet has already begun in his arrival. The party has started. And yes, there's going to be a great wedding feast in the promised when Jesus returns and the church, his bride, are united. That's going to be a great feast. But we'd be remiss to think that this feast of God's God is a one-time event in the future, and we'd miss the point even more, just like Jesus' hosts at this meal in Luke chapter 14, to think that we've got a seat at that table just because we're good people, or just because we prayed some prayer, or just because we say, Jesus, we responded to you. See, the great banquet of God's kingdom is now. It's actually begun 2,000 years ago. And that banquet continues today through the work of God's people in the church of Jesus Christ, you and I. And this feast is by no means finished yet. You and I are commissioned to welcome and invite others into the feast of God's kingdom that is already happening, that has already started, and the party's continuing. So we are invited to extend the hospitality of God to all with soft and repentant hearts. The party of God, of God's reign, has begun since Jesus arrived, and especially since he died and rose again. So will we live like that, like it's begun? Live for it. Live like it. And as you do so, may you find yourself lifted and honored by God in ways that you could have never imagined for yourself.